Welcome back to the Dirt Show. A lot has happened since we last spoke, including me getting a new tooth. Nobody can complain now that I look like Albert, Alfred E. Newman or somebody who's just been in a tooth. My, my great dentist uh, uh, in Martha's Vineyard um, fixed it up and he guaranteed it uh, that it won't fall out, at least until I reach my car. Um, I've now reached my car, come home, and it's still still staying in. So let's let's hope. Um, but uh, even if it falls out, I'm still the same person. <clears throat> You're not watching the podcast for my looks. I assure you that I have a face for radio. I always have. And I hope you're watching it because um, you may disagree with me, but at least you understand that my point of view is principled and intelligent. As you know, I've written a book on that subject, The Price of Principle, my 50th book. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It tells the story of how much I have been uh, punished as the result of living a life of principle most recently. Uh, you know, I don't really care about the parties. I care more about libraries and community centers, depriving my audiences of the right to hear my, my point of view. But, but um, uh, some time ago, I was uh, uh, invited to a dinner party and they sat me next to Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of the the president. And when she was leaving, she said, if I knew you had been invited, I wouldn't have come. And yes, just the other day, I wasn't invited to an engagement party. And the hosts uh, sent me an email saying, sorry, uh, a number of people said that if you showed up, uh, we, we, um, uh, we wouldn't come. So they disinvited me, quite the opposite of what happened when I invited President Obama, who was living right next door to me, um, a rental house on Martha's Vineyard to my 75th birthday. And I got a message back. The president would love to come. But he said he heard that Geraldo Rivera was going to be there. And he at the time was at the Fox, uh, Fox News. And he said, President Obama said, um, unless you disinvite um, um, Geraldo Rivera, I, I won't be able to come, even though I'd like to. And I said, Mr. President, it would be really nice to have you. But sorry, I don't disinvite people because others won't be with them. So I guess we're just going to miss you. And he wrote me a nice note, but he didn't come to my party. That's what a mensch does. That's what a decent person does. That's what a principled person does. He says to the people who wouldn't come, stay away. Uh, that's not what happened uh, uh, with me and my wife. Uh, the unprincipled people who invited us uh, said, no, we're going to listen to the people who said uh, we will stay away unless you disinvite. So they disinvited me. It's, I had a really nice time with my family. It wasn't uh, uh, significant to me. Well, what is significant to me is being banned from the library because hundreds of people would like to hear me speak and they can't in the Chilmark Library or really on Martha's Vineyard at all because I've been canceled. And that's what I wrote about in The Price of Principle, which I hope you will buy on Amazon. In any event, let's turn to what today's subject is. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy by civil libertarians. Hypocrisy on the left. There's plenty of hypocrisy on the right, too. There's no monopoly uh, on the left or among civil libertarians, but we expect more from civil libertarians. So let's talk a little bit about the espionage statute of 1917. You may have recently heard about it because it was the main statute cited in the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago that was issued by the judge in Florida. In other words, they were looking for evidence of violation of the Espionage Act of 1917. You know, to find a violation of the Espionage Act of 1917, all they have to do is walk down the street and pick the first person out. Uh, it's probably the worst statute passed by the United States since the Alien and Sedition Acts passed during the John Adams administration. 
The Espionage Act is vague and broad. It's gone through various incarnations. At one point, it banned any salacious attacks on the government of the United States, any essentially any acts of, of disloyalty to the United States, accordion-like, broad, open-ended. It was used against many of the icons of the hard left, many radicals. It was used against Eugene V. Debs, men who ran for president of the United States as a socialist. They uh, invoked the Espionage Act to, to arrest him. It was used against Emma Goldman, an anarchist back in the uh, early part of the 20th century. It was used against, remember, baby doctor Benjamin Spock, uh, who opposed the war because the Espionage Act um, criminalizes any statements, First Amendment protected statements that are made um, uh, against a war and any effort to try to get people not to uh, serve in the army. The famous statement, um, uh, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater comes from an espionage uh, case. And um, it's an absurd analogy, fire in a theater. Yelling fire in a crowded theater, of course, is like setting off an alarm. It's not speech, it's a clang sound. It's not designed to make you think, it's designed to make you run. And um, uh, of course you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, but that's not what um, the people were charged with. They were charged with handing out a leaflet, which said to people, you ought to invoke your constitutional rights and your rights uh, under a conscientious objector statutes not to fight Wall Street's war, meaning the first world war. Um, so the analogy is not shouting fire in a the theater. The analogy is to handing out a leaflet in front of the theater saying, don't go into that theater because it might be dangerous and there might be a fire that's caused. So it's probably the stupidest um, uh, legal analogy ever coined by one of the smartest justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes. But the analogy itself is stupid. I won an award a few years ago, best essay, uh, when I wrote an essay um, for The Atlantic uh, attacking the concept of shouting fire in the theater as a, a guide to First Amendment analysis. But the statute is just filled with these kinds of absurd, absurd things. Daniel Ellsberg was prosecuted under it. Julian Assange is being uh, investigated and indicted under it. Chelsea Manning, um, you know, just almost every hero of the left, every icon of the left has been prosecuted uh, under it. And of course, the left hates it. They think it's the worst statute in the world. At least they used to think that until it was used against Donald Trump. Now it's their favorite statute. They're embracing it. They want to expand it. They want to make it bigger. They want to make it better. They want to make it more inclusive. What hypocrisy. What hypocrisy. My friends, civil libertarians who hate this statute, now glorifying it. Where is the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, Anti-Civil Liberties Union, dead in the water? They challenge this espionage statute probably more than any other statute on the books today on First Amendment grounds. They challenge its constitutionality. They challenge its applicability. They challenge its breadth, its vagueness. Where are they today? Oh, there's an exception in the law for the American Civil Liberties Union. If you're trying to get Trump, anything goes. Anything goes if you're trying to get Trump. Look at my former colleague, Lawrence Tribe. He's willing to say on CNN without contradiction that he's trying to get his former student and his friend, Merrick Garland, to indict and prosecute former President Trump for attempting to murder 
Vice President Pence. Can you imagine, has anything so stupid ever come out of the mouth of a law professor? Attempted murder of the vice president? Does he not know the law? No, he knows the law. He's not being ignorant. He's being malicious and he's being mendacious. He knows the law. He took criminal law. Thank God he didn't take it from me. But he took criminal law. He learned about the law of attempts. It's not a close question. You can't go after somebody for attempted murder for not doing anything or for saying the things, the general things that President Trump uh, is alleged to have said. It's just preposterous. But for Tribe and others like him, and there are too many, it doesn't matter. As long as you can get Trump, it's okay to trash the Constitution. There are others who say now, oh, if we can only get him convicted of violating classification laws or under the Espionage Act, then he can't run for president. Nonsense. He can run for president from prison. He can run for president with striped uniform as a convicted felon. There are only four criteria for running for president. I've been through them before. You have to be over 35. Trump's over 35. You have to be born in America, although Trump ridiculously said that Barack Obama wasn't born in America. Uh, nobody claims that Donald Trump wasn't born in America. He was born in Queens. Now, we from Brooklyn didn't really regard Queens as part of America, but uh, technically under the Constitution, he was born in America. Third, he could not have fought in the Civil War against the Union Army. Now he's old, but he ain't that old. He didn't fight in the Civil War. The 14th Amendment provides for exclusion from office for somebody who engaged in <clears throat> the kind of conduct that the framers of that amendment intended to apply to people who fought for the union and people who fought for the against the union and people who fought against the union were in fact disqualified from office. But that uh, provision hasn't been used and can't be used since probably the 1900. And the fourth criteria is you can't run for office if you've been convicted after impeachment of an impeachable offense and the Senate adds to it that you were disqualified forever from running for office. That didn't happen. And these zealots who are prepared to trash the Constitution in order to get Trump uh, don't understand the implication of their argument. They argue that Congress can add restrictions to who can run for president. So there are four restrictions in the Constitution. They can add a fifth. They can say, what, you have to be a Christian? No, they can't say that. Uh, they can say, you have to be white? No, they can't say that. But what if they were to say, um, you can't have been impeached even if you were acquitted? Nothing in the Constitution forbids that. It's not racial discrimination. It's not gender discrimination. It's not religious discrimination. But it would be unconstitutional because it would mean that a Democratic-controlled Congress, which we have today, Democrats control the House, control the Senate, control the presidency, they could pass a statute saying that Donald Trump can't run for president because he's been <clears throat> impeached twice, but acquitted uh, uh, twice. Uh, or I guess they could say nobody who lives in uh, Palm Beach or Mar-a-Lago can run for president. If you give Congress the power to extend <clears throat> disqualifications for running for president, there's no end to it. It means the opposing party can decide who's going to run against the incumbent president. Is there anything more un-American than that? 
I challenge tribe, I challenge any of these former civil libertarians who have now abandoned civil liberties, trashed the constitution in order to get Trump. I challenge any of them to debate me on this issue. Um, they won't, because they know there's no answer. The only answer is Trump's bad and therefore anything, anything goes, anything goes. Um, there's a great scene in A Man for All Seasons, the movie and the play, in which the protagonists, uh, one says to the other, I would do anything to get the devil. And they just switch the word devil to Donald Trump because these people think he's worse than the devil. Uh, <clears throat> would you cut down all the laws of England? Yes, I would cut down laws of England. I would cut down all the laws of England. And then Sir Thomas More, St. Thomas More says, if you cut down all the laws of England, who will stop the devil from coming after you? Um, you know, it's a variation on the theme when they came for <clears throat> the communists. Um, I didn't object because I wasn't a communist. When they came for the Jews, I didn't protest because I wasn't a Jew. And then when they came for me, there was no one less to, left to protest. The laws are there to protect us. They, they're not there to make life easier for Democrats or Republicans. They're not there. They're not designed <clears throat> to um, simply... Uh, allow you to do what you want to do politically, which is the way, of course, that many of the people on the hard uh, left would like to see it be done. But uh, <clears throat> that's not the way the law works. That's the way some 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 zealot hard left people would like to see it work. So I have been opposed to the Espionage Act of 1917 as long as I understood what it said. I can't say I was opposed to it since 1917. I'm old. I'm going to be 84 in two weeks, but I'm not that old. So I didn't object to it in 1917, but I probably started to object to it in the late 1950s, probably when I was a student in college. Uh, I've always hated that law. It's, as I said, probably the worst law ever enacted by Congress in terms of civil liberties uh, since the Alien and Sedition Acts enacted by the Adams administration and supported by Alexander Hamilton and George Washington. Very, very good people who supported the worst statute ever written to suppress dissent. The, the, the uh, Espionage Act of 1917 is the second worst statute ever written to, uh, to uh, stifle dissent, particularly dissent against uh, wars, dissent, and it was used. It was used against the First World War. It was probably not used very much against the Second World War, which was a fairly popular war. It was used against the Vietnam War. It was used against the Iraq War. And uh, every time it was used in that way, the left objected, civil libertarians objected. But now the same civil libertarians, the same leftists, are, um, thank you, um, <clears throat> my son just went nicely to get me water. The same civil libertarians without shame, without an ounce of shame, what's missing in our society today is shame because shame goes along with principle. My book, The Price of Principle, could have been entitled The Loss of Shame because if you don't care about shame, then you're you're willing to uh, throw away old principles. And that's what uh, the hard left and the civil libertarians and the tribe followers are prepared to do. Give up all principles. Give up all sense of shame. Give up all sense of, gee, it's so inconsistent with what we said in the past. We don't care. We don't care. Trump trumps everything. Trump trumps morality. 
Trump trumps principles. Trump trumps the Constitution. Trump trumps the rule of law. Trump trumps every decent thing because Trump is so indecent, these people say, that the ends justify the means. Would they stop at assassination? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, certainly, a lot of them hope probably their nightmares, their dreams, their nightmare is that he remains alive. Their dream is that somehow he does not does not survive. Uh, these people are obsessed. They are obsessed. They have Trump derangement syndrome. You know, I experienced derangement syndrome on something else. When I was speaking on college campuses, I would talk about Jefferson. People would agree or disagree. I would talk about the Bill of Rights. People would agree or disagree. I would talk about abortion. People would strongly agree or disagree. But then I mentioned the I word. And as soon as I mentioned the I word, people went nuts, just went crazy. The I word, of course, is Israel. When you mention Israel on a college campus, it's like you're talking about Nazi Germany or Mussolini's Italy or Stalin's Russia. You cannot have a rational discussion about Israel on college campuses today. I know I've tried. I've tried. I'm a person who supports the two-state solution. I'm moderate. Um, people on the extreme right don't like me. People on the extreme left don't like me. That's typical of my life. But on Israel, I'm very moderate. I've known most of the prime ministers uh, of Israel. I know the head of the Palestine Liberation uh, Organization. I represented Palestinian students wanting to fly the Palestinian flag when Yasser Arafat died. But nobody's willing to discuss Israel on college campuses. It's just shouting. It's just slogans. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, means meaning no Israel. Uh, genocide, apartheid, a lot of slogans, a lot of bumper stickers, almost no discussion. So I was prepared for Trump derangement syndrome because of Israel derangement syndrome. And that's happened now. Professor Lawrence Tribe is not rational when it comes to Trump. I, I'm wondering if he'd even deny it. He thinks Trump is the worst thing that has ever happened to America. And he loves America. And he wants to save it. And he's prepared to trash the Constitution, trash the rule of law, expand statutes, expand uh, laws, contract rights. I'm just not prepared to do that. Uh, I'm not a politician. I don't I care about politics. I voted twice against Trump. I'm, uh, if he runs again, I will vote probably a third time against him. Um, but uh, this is not about my politics. This is about the Constitution. This is about the rule of law. This is about, to quote uh, uh, Merrick Garland, this is about even-handed application of the law. We're not getting it. If you want to read some more about my views on that, uh, pick up a copy of the Wall Street Journal today or go online and get a copy of the Wall Street Journal today. I have an op-ed uh, in which I talk about what aboutism uh, and I talk about these um, inequalities. And so I think some of you might enjoy my article on the Wall Street Journal. If you want to really know what I think, again, the price of principle, um, inexpensive, easy to read, Amazon.com. Just, just, just get it and I think you would enjoy it. It also would support, not financially, uh, but I think it would also support the principle against me being canceled by 
by so many people. By the way, even some of the people on the right who write me letters, they would like to cancel me too uh, because I'm not, you know, a thoroughgoing right-wing zealot. Uh, they would like to cancel me because I didn't vote for Trump. They would like to cancel me because I have said that uh, Merrick Garland is a decent man. They would like to cancel me. Everybody is into canceling these days. I'm into conversations and discussions and that's why we have this podcast. So I hope you'll join me in conversations and discussions. Let me now turn to some of the letters. Okay. Professor Dershowitz, the raid on Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago isn't an issue, isn't an issue, an issue fraught with moral subtleties and quibblings over whataboutism. This is 100% third world dictated Gestapo BS right in America's face. This is not a gray area, anything involving even a shred of moral uncertainty. The FBI has gone full Nazi. The DOJ and the Biden administration are out of control. Donald Trump is the greatest friend the Jewish people have ever had. Why don't you openly rise to his defense? It's a Shanda. Shanda is the Yiddish word for scandal or shame. Look, I don't agree with this letter. I do not think we are a Nazi regime. I do not think we are like a third world regime. I am worried about it, but I don't exaggerate it. We still have the rule of law. We have a Supreme Court that can check and balance legislatures and the executive. Even when you look at things like January 6th, democracy won. In the end, the vote was taken. Biden was declared the president legitimately. He won the presidency legitimately. He got many, 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 many more popular votes legitimately. And he got enough electoral votes to put him over the top. Democracy won. We're not Nazi Germany. But to avoid becoming Nazi Germany, we have to stop the trashing of the Constitution here and now. We have to tell the Lawrence tribes of the world enough. No, you can't get your way if your way requires us to ignore the Constitution that you've taught about for 50 years. Okay, next one is very much like that. Um, there is a strong likelihood that the federal agents were there to plant evidence to fabricate a prosecution or to install surreptitious recording devices with or without a proper authorization. I... Double dare, Professor Dershowitz, to discuss, then he says something, I don't know what it is, to discuss the conduct of Kevin Kleinsmith. I have no idea who Kevin Kleinsmith is. Maybe you'll let me know. But uh, in any event, this point is wrong. I don't believe that they went to Mar-a-Lago to plant evidence. I have seen instances where evidence has been planted. Uh, I used to, when I taught in criminal law, I would bring my friend Frank Burns, who was a great, great policeman. He was the cop in charge of um, monitoring actions at Harvard Square. And I would bring him to class to illustrate what a stop and frisk really looks like. And so, you know, I get a volunteer student and the student uh, would come and he'd be frisked and he'd be searched. And I, I had planted the students usually in advance and gave them toy guns and knives to hide in various places and to see whether Frank could Officer Burns could come up with the uh, with the, and he he did all the time. He found the guns, he found the knives, etc. And then uh, I had usually had a couple of students do that. And the last student, he would then say after he found the gun and the knife, and he'd say, "What's that in your back pocket?" And the student would say, "Nothing in my back pocket." He said, "No, no, no. I felt something in the back pocket. What's that in your back pocket?" And the guy would go into his back pocket and pull out a packet of heroin. Reading in class was shocked. And then Frank Burns would say, I planted it there. 
It was the easiest thing in the world. While I was searching for the gun, I planted a packet of heroin. Just to illustrate the possibility that, you know, evidence can be planted. I do not believe the FBI would plant evidence uh, at the home of a former president of the United States. They did not want the lawyers there. They did not videotape it. I think they should videotape every search. Um, but apparently some of the video cameras, security cameras were still on. So maybe we'll be able to get a better view of whether or not uh, the search was conducted uh, properly. There are problems with searches. I've seen problems with searches. Sometimes they go beyond the scope of the warrant. Um, but I just don't believe this FBI uh, would plant evidence. Certainly, I wouldn't believe for a minute that the director of the FBI or the attorney general of the United States would tolerate or authorize any such thing. And I know enough FBI agents, um, and, and a lot of them are really great people. And I know former directors. I know a lot of FBI agents. I, I just don't know any of them that would ever do something like that. So I, I don't believe it. Um, uh, you know, remember those two FBI agents or one FBI agent or his girlfriend who were on the phone before the 2016 election saying, well, can do, we should have to do anything to stop Trump from getting elected. But I, I think that would stop short of planting evidence. First of all, when you plant evidence, a good lawyer can very often approve it. And, uh, you know, it raises the stakes considerably. So I don't believe that's happened. Um, okay, let's see what's next. Whataboutism is the story of your life, my life. The Dems do something despicable, and you always find a moment in history when Republicans have done the same. That's because it's true. It's because Republicans and Democrats are equally willing and culpable and equally able to uh, violate rules uh, the, at different points in time. The Republicans did it during McCarthyism. Um, and the Democrats are doing it uh, now. You're always taking a pseudo-balanced position to make it look less bad. I don't think it's pseudo. I'm trying to take a balanced position. And if digging in the past is a problem, there is always a hypocritical future to mobilize. I believe in looking at things comparatively. Yeah, that's and I believe in what about ism. Um, and yeah, if you want to say that's my life, that's fine. I think you misunderstood what I said. I like what about ism. I think it's a good argument. It was Hillary Clinton that was wearing the hat that mocked what about ism. I'm a supporter of what about ism. So what about ism is the story of your life? Fine. What you're saying is equal protection of the law is the story of my life. And it is. So I'm happy to be guilty of wanting to see even-handed application of the law and the equal protection of the law. Guilty as charged. Okay, next. This is a good one. The DOJ needs to be dismantled and compartmentalized. The directors behind the authorizing of Trump, Trump's fishing expedition need to go. That's a different issue. The majority of citizens have lost faith in the DOJ due to corruption which has been proven in the FISA violations on the Trump campaign, now President Trump. If you disagree, let's collect signatures. Um, we can get enough signatures in two weeks to dismantle the DOJ, hands down. I doubt that. Stop obstructing the destruction of law by enabling a cheaply political corrupt DOJ. Let me tell you what's good about this otherwise fairly extreme uh, statement. The Department of Justice should be dismantled and compartmentalized. There should be two departments. One consisting and headed by a political appointee 
call him the attorney general. Fine. He's confirmed by Congress, appointed by the president. And he serves at the will of the president. And he serves in order to help the president get reelected. He is his advisor on the law, on legal issues, political, completely political. In England and Israel, they're called the minister of justice. They're in the cabinet, as the attorney general is in the cabinet. But that person should have no authority to bring criminal charges against anybody. It should be a purely advisory political job. There should be a separate job called the director of public prosecution. Civil service job. Ten-year terms, like the FBI, like other bank, other things. And the director of public prosecution should not be in the cabinet. Shouldn't necessarily be of the same political party. Shouldn't ever talk to the president or the White House. Shouldn't be invited to parties at the White House or anything. The job of that person, he or she, is to only decide when to prosecute, to authorize prosecution and non-prosecution. That should be totally separate from any political aspect of the Justice Department. You know how many years I have been advocating this? I started advocating this during the Clinton administration. So we're talking 25 years ago. I wrote my first piece about it. I think I was advocating it in class well before that. But I think my first writings on it were 27 years ago, 26 years ago, something like that. You can go back and look it up. Um, and uh, I think that would be the best approach that the Justice Department could take. Right now, it's schizophrenic. You have the same person. He's called the attorney general. Out of one side of his face, he has to give advice to the president. He has to be the president's loyal political advisor, member of the cabinet. The other side and the other face is he has to be completely disloyal to the president. He has to be disloyal to his political party. He has to be nonpartisan. He has to make sure that justice is completely even-handed. He has to make sure, or she has to make sure, that uh, only the guilty are prosecuted, and they're prosecuted without regard to the political implications. That's the way it works in England, director of public prosecution. That's the way it worked in Israel. In Israel, the division is between the minister of justice, who is the political appointee. I remember meeting once a minister of justice, and... Um, we in Israel and we talked and and I asked him, how does he make decisions, you know, very hard decisions about prosecution? He says, thank God I don't have to make them because I'm not a real lawyer. He said, I'm a politician. I'm I advise the prime minister. That's my job. I'm loyal to the prime minister. If you want to know how to prosecute, go to the attorney general in Israel. The attorney general is a an objective, nonpartisan job, usually given Historically, it was given to deans of law schools and former judges, maybe people who are above reproach and above politics. And that's the way it should be. So I agree with you. The Justice Department needs to be dismantled and compartmentalized. And we'll see tomorrow what that would the implications of a complete revision of the Justice Department, whether that's the fix, whether that's the answer to the current problem. No doubt we have a current problem. And I'll keep talking about it until it's solved. That will keep me on the air forever. See you tomorrow.